Hello lovely listeners, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Lisa Marie Imray. Hello to anyone listening in for the first time, thank you guys so much, like it's great having you here. I really appreciate all the support, I really really do. Each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and I talk about a true crime story, so if that sounds like something that you could be interested in, then hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on, and that way then you won't miss an episode and all the other episodes prior to this one will be available for you to listen to. This podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music. So this week is the third and final episode of our three-part mini-series that covers the 1960s crime wave in Australia. These are the three like big crimes that marked the end of innocence in Australian life. So if you are listening in for the first time, don't panic. It's not the third part of one crime. It's the third crime in a very short period of time that happened in Australia that just changed everything. The previous episodes covered the kidnapping and murder of Graham Thorne and last week covered the unsolved Wanda Beach murders. So they're available to listen to if you want to check those out. But if not, that's fine. You can listen to this one too. So this week's episode is special for quite a few reasons. So one, it's the finale of Coffee and Crime's first series-esque type of thing. But also it's like the first case that uh, we've covered in the podcast that doesn't wind up with a dead body essentially it's implied in some cases but it's actually not about the murder of someone it's hard to explain but you'll see also not sure if it's that obvious but I have a brand new setup that I'm recording this episode on I have a like a proper microphone set up now which is very exciting So hopefully the audio is a bit better and a bit more consistent because I know it's been a little bit all over the shop over the last couple of weeks. It's also the first episode uh, since creating the TikTok page. It's, It's a very special one. So I really hope that you stick with me through it because I'm very excited to be sharing this week's story. Not because the story's nice, because they're not nice, it's true crime, but it's just exciting for all the changes and for where the podcast is going. So... I'm going to get into it. I'll stop rambling. Let's get on with it. Warning. The following episode contains discussion of abduction, rape and murder of minors that listeners may find disturbing. This podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. So this week's case takes place in Glenelg, Adelaide. And I really hope I've said that right. Glenelg. And for a quick reference, our previous two cases, Graham Thorne and the Wanda Beach murders, they happened in Sydney. So Adelaide is a 15-hour drive away from Sydney. They're both in like the southeastern part of Australia, but Adelaide is in the Southern Australian Territory and Sydney is in the New South Wales Territory. Just a few geography facts for you, because we all know by now, (laughs) those who have listened to episodes should know by now that I suck at geography. So, there you go. So, anyway, <clears throat> Glenelg has got everything you need. It's got beaches, it's got parks, it's got lots of picnic areas, but it's also got the heritage buildings, it's got hotels and shops, cafes, entertainment venues for all year round, winter and summer, 
and it's just like just the place to be it's about 20 minutes away from Adelaide Central five minutes away from an airport like fun and convenient which is always what you want where you live right so yeah we're in Glenelg the year is 1966 and it's January 26th the day January 26 1966 if you're an Australian hello to all of you in Australia you should know hopefully you should know January 26th is a very important day because it's Australia Day it's the day that all Australians celebrate Australian culture the history and the heritage in the country they celebrate with festivals and concerts um, official ceremonies Aboriginal events like it's 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 the day it's Australia Day what more could I say really but for the residents of Glenelg January 26th became a very dark and a very sad day in 1966 everything changed Jim Beaumont well his actual name was Grant but apparently everyone called him Jim so I'm gonna call him Jim Jim Beaumont and his wife Nancy were just a normal couple just normal Jim was an ex-serviceman who then worked as a salesman and sometimes a taxi driver and Nancy was just a stay-at-home housewife. The couple got married in 1955 and they had a cozy little house in Somerton Park which is literally, like quite literally, a five-minute drive from Glenelg Beach. On September 10th, 1956, they welcomed their firstborn Jane Natari Beaumont Two years later, 11th of November 1958, Anna Kathleen Beaumont was born and on July 12th, 1961, Grant Ellis Beaumont was born. So the family of five, like, they were just your average citizens. They were just this ordinary family. The three kids were polite, they were well behaved, they were shy, a little quiet, but they just, they were just good kids. They were also like each other's best friends like they were all quite close in age and they loved just spending time with each other they loved spending time with their parents they always had fun like i don't really know how i say it. they were the picture perfect nuclear family they didn't struggle financially they didn't live in luxury but they were doing all right they lived in a nice area a small town and everyone knew everyone and it was deemed to be a safe area right because everyone knew everyone. So in 1966, Jane, she was nine, Anna was seven, and Grant was four. On January 25th, Jim, Papa Jim, he took the three kids down to Glenelg Beach and he wanted to spend the day with them as he was actually gonna be heading out of town later that day for a three-day business trip. So, you know, just wanted to spend time with his kids. They went off, they had an amazing day at the beach. It's the peak of summer, It's 35 degrees plus and the beach was just the perfect place to go. January 26th the very next day was another scorching hot day in Adelaide and everyone was in a good mood. It's summer there was sales on there was specials on also with it being Australia Day like just good vibes all around. Jane Anna and Grant had asked Mum and Nancy if they could go and spend another day at the beach because it's too hot to sit inside and the beach, the sea, it's cold. It's the perfect remedy. With Jane being nine years old, she'd actually started to become quite mature and independent. She'd actually 
been able to take her two younger siblings on a bus to the beach for the day and back all by herself without Jim or Nancy there. She had done this a handful of times already, which to me, I don't even remember what I was doing at nine years old, but like, that's insane. That's very mature, very mature. The bus ride was literally five minutes and if they wanted to walk, it would take like 15 to 20 minutes. So there was no issue. So on January 26th, when the kids wanted to go, Nancy didn't think twice about it. I think she wanted to go catch up with a friend or something. So it was kind of perfect for her that the kids could go and use their energy and she could get the things that she needed done as well. Nancy walked her kids to the front gate and she watched them get on a bus at 8.45am and waved them goodbye. Not realising that this would be the last time that she would see any of her three children ever again. So Jane was wearing a pink one piece with pale green shorts and white sand shoes. She had a bag that had towels, dry clothes, beach toys, that kind of stuff. She also had with her a copy of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott which is also one of my favourite childhood books, so good taste. Anna had a red and white striped one-piece on with tan shorts and sandals and a bright orange hair clip-in. And Grant was wearing green shorts, red sandals with no shirt. Nancy had given Jane eight shillings and six pence, which is coins, old currency, which this was to cover the bus fares and to get some snacks from the corner shop near the beach. In total, there were 17 items on the trip that the children took with them. It's an important little thing to remember. The kids got off the bus at Mosley Street bus stop, which was across the road from Wenzel's Bakery. They walked down the street to Collie Reserve, which was a park just off the beach. Now, I know that's a lot of like weird little information, but it does come up later on. I, I promise, I promise. So Nancy expected the children to be home on the 12pm bus. She waited at the gate and when the bus came and left without the kids getting off it, she, she thought it was odd but she didn't panic. She thought maybe the kids had lost track of time, it was lunchtime, maybe they were having snacks. Like it, it was okay, weird but okay. When the kids didn't get off the 2pm bus, this is when Nancy started to get really worried. It was so unlike Jane and out of character for her to be that unorganized that they would miss the bus twice, right? Now, luckily and surprisingly, Jim arrived home at 3 p.m. His, his business trip had got cut short for some reason, but Nancy was like, thank my lucky stars. When he arrived home, she said to him, look, the kids, they're not here. They were at the beach all day. They haven't come home. So he drove down to the beach to have a look for them. Now, you could probably imagine the beach was packed. Summer, Australia Day, high 30s, it was packed full of people. So Jim got out, he had a look around for the kids, he asked people if anyone had seen them, but unfortunately nobody had. He drove home to tell Nancy and then he said that he was going to drive around the nearby streets, knock on some of the neighbors' doors, some of the friends' doors to see if anyone had seen them. And Nancy said she'd stay at home. She didn't want to leave just in case the kids did turn up. By 7.30 p.m., the kids hadn't showed. So Nancy and Jim went down to the police station to report them missing. Almost immediately, the police were down at Glenelg Beach. They were searching through the dunes, long grassed areas, nearby shops and buildings. 
anyone who was still out at that time they were asking them if they had seen or knew anything police were also aware that the airport train station and interstate roads were close by so they searched around there just in case the kids had got into an accident they were looking for any of the belongings that the kids had taken so any of the 17 items that Jane had taken with them and this is when the police ruled out drowning at the beach because they didn't they didn't find anything they didn't find her book they didn't find towels like because that would have been on the beach you don't take that into the water right unfortunately they didn't they couldn't find a single scrap of evidence that the kids were even at the beach that day within 24 hours the whole of Australia were aware of the missing Beaumont children. Within 36 hours of being reported missing, the biggest manhunt in Australian history to date had begun. Police, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, as well as thousands of civilians of Glenelg had started to look for the kids. They fanned out and they searched every crook and nanny they could find stormwater drains, sewage channels, sand hills, cliff faces, construction sites were dug up just in case, like the whole of Glenelg was searched, but to no avail. There was not a single scrap of evidence of the kids being anywhere, but it was like a phenomenon. No one had ever seen anything like that before. That many people looking for kids because kids didn't go missing, right? So you have to think right it was a packed beach in a town where everyone knew everyone surely someone somewhere saw these three kids well when the police offered a 250 australian pound reward witness reports came flying in so we'll start with tom patterson he was the local postman so everyone knew tom and tom knew everyone he knew the kids well he'd seen them multiple times they said hey they'd exchanged pleasantries in the past he knew these kids so he came forward and he said that he saw the three kids on jetty road which is one of the roads that leads down from the beach and onto the jetty he said that the kids were holding hands they were laughing and they were walking in the direction of their home and this was around 3 p.m now what the police didn't understand about this report was that if they were good kids and Jane was the super reliable nine-year-old why were they like strolling along when they were late home two days later after making this initial statement Tom got in contact with the police and said oh it, it wasn't the afternoon I actually saw them in the morning sorry the police didn't actually then think he was suspicious I mean we look at that now and be like um that is suspicious also now looking back it's like Australia Day is a public holiday so why are you delivering mail I mean I don't know what it was like back in 1966 maybe there still was mail delivered on on a public holiday but I mean we look back at it now and that sounds a little bit suspicious but the police didn't think so at the time he was known by everyone and no one said anything bad about him on January 29th three days after the kids were reported missing a woman came forward and reported that she had seen three children that matched the description of the Beaumonts at around 7pm on the night of the 26th near Patawalonga Boat Haven, which is like a little marina pond type of thing. 
so the police drained the marina and nothing was found. Then there was a handful of witness reports that came in saying they saw the three children playing on a grass area just off the beach, and this was around 11am. The children had found a spot to put their stuff down, they ran off for a quick dip in the sea before coming back and playing, reading, you know, that kind of thing. And what was interesting was these reports also stated that there was a man who was watching the kids from a distance who then approached the kids, put his things down and kind of joined in with whatever they were doing. One woman stated that everyone seemed very friendly with each other. At one point she saw Grant jump on the man and then the girls joined in like a little dog pile. Then they started flicking their towels at each other, running around, playing tag, you know, that kind of thing. So it didn't raise any red flags because the kids seemed very friendly, very open, like, like they knew this guy, right? So this man was described as approximately six foot tall, blonde, swept back hair, clean shaven, thin faced. He was thin to athletic build, mid to late 30s, possibly early 40s. He was seen wearing speedos, which gross, but he also at one point had blue tog shorts, a towel and a shirt. So yeah, this was, this was kind of a generic description that was given by multiple people. So the police gave this description to an, a sketch artist and told him like, you know, we're on a deadline here. We need this. Turns out that the artist, instead of drawing the sketch, he started to drink and he was drunk as a skunk and then rushed to get this, uh, this sketch in. So the sketch was legible, but like, could have been better. Like, good one, bro. This is a huge case and you just like, mm. anyway, yeah. So there was a couple that had reported to the police that they had seen the man. They said that they were sitting on the grass area nearby where the kids were playing. They told police that the man came over and spoke to them. The man had asked the couple if they had seen anyone lingering about his, like his bag and their clothes um, or if anyone had been rummaging through them. And the couple were like, no, nah, we haven't seen anyone. Like, why is that? And the man had told them that he had money missing from his clothes, from his belongings, right? So he left this couple and he went back over to the kids. And what he did next, like, piqued curiosity in the couple. They said that they saw the man dress the kids, like, full on get them changed. Now, Grant, they could understand. He was four. He was little. You know you've got to help kids get their stuff on. Otherwise, they get it all back to front and upside down. But with... Anna and Jane, like especially Jane, she was clearly old enough to get herself changed. So it was quite weird that this man was then getting these kids changed. But they didn't know if that was their dad or not. So they didn't think overly too much about it, but they still just thought it was a bit weird. The couple then saw the kids follow this man up to the public changing rooms and they waited outside while the man got changed. And when they came out, the couple lost sight of the, the group, the kids and the man, as they walked in the direction of the bus stop. And this was about 12.15pm. So if Tom the postman did actually see the kids in the morning, not the afternoon, then the last sighting of the Beaumont children was between 12.20 and 12.30pm. 
This was at Wenzel's Bakery, which, if you remember, is across the street from the Mosley Street bus stop. The shop assistant, he said that Jane was the only one to enter the bakery and she bought five pasties, six finger buns, two large bottles of fizzy drink and a meat pie. The shop assistant said that Jane paid for all of this with a one pound note. Now, quick side note, one pound to get all that food. Like that's, oh, that's insane. Like that would easily be 25 to 30 dollars nowadays like what back to the story this was weird and immediately raised red flags because nancy had only given her eight shillings and six pence in coins she didn't have a one pound note also that's a very large order for three young kids nancy and jim also said that the meat pie was not something that any of the kids would have ordered they were sweet tooths. They wanted the pasties and the finger buns, but not that many of them. So, like, there was just something odd. There was something real suspicious about this order and the meat pie and the one pound note. So, with all the reports that were coming in, the police determined that the Beaumont children had been abducted. So, the big question is that why were these shy kids, like, happily playing and hanging out with this, this mystery man? Well, Nancy told police that after a few trips to the beach that the kids took by themselves, Anna would start poking fun at Jane, saying like, ooh, Jane's got a boyfriend. And Nancy didn't think, like, she would never have thought that she was talking about a grown man. Nancy just thought it was like another little boy who was there with his family, right? Like a playmate. But when the kids have now disappeared, like, this thought turns sinister possibly being groomed by this mystery man when they were there by themselves. Jane probably took a fancy to him and this is why Anna referred to him as like boyfriend. So oh, it just makes you feel sick to your stomach. Police plastered newspapers nationwide with the sketch, the description of the man and they believed they were looking for a predator. Fast forwarding now to October 1966 a woman got in touch with the police. She was now living in Perth, which is a three and a half hour flight from Adelaide. It's on like the other side of Australia. Well, she claimed to be in Adelaide in January when the kids went missing. And she said that on the 26th, the day the kids went missing, she saw two girls and a boy enter an abandoned property next to her house. She said later on that night, the little boy started walking on the street by himself and a man caught up with him and took him back inside the house. The next morning, there was absolutely no sign of them there and she never saw them again. Uh, hello? Where have you been the last nine months, lady? The police were frustrated that it took her this long to give that information. Whether it was credible or not, the police could have found fresh clues if she had just come forward and said the police never did end up searching this abandoned property because too much time had passed but <clears throat> lady get it together in november of 1966 two businessmen had paid for a very famous clairvoyant from denmark to come to australia uh, a clairvoyant if you don't know is someone who claims to have psychic abilities can see the future or can sense things that other people can't 
I don't know, like vast majority of people kind of call BS on this kind of stuff. Like, and there are a lot of scammers who pretend to be clairvoyants out there to swindle money. So I don't know. But this clairvoyant in particular, his name was Gerard Coisset. He was, uh, he's quite famous. He had quite a high success rate at helping the police in the Netherlands with missing persons cases. So enough of the public in Glenelg was like, yes, we want this guy here. So he was flown in and Gerard claimed to have seen the children, you know, in, in his mind's eye. Uh, that they were buried underneath concrete in a nearby warehouse. The warehouse was identified and the owners said, yep, absolutely, you can dig it up. Anything we can to help find these kids. The locals of Glenelg formed a committee and raised 40,000 Australian dollars to demolish and excavate the site. Jim and Nancy were super grateful to anyone and everyone that was helping them find the kids, but they didn't want to meet Gerard at all. Um... They did an interview and they were super nice about it. Like, don't get me wrong, they were really, really grateful, but they just said, like, no thanks. Jim didn't believe his children were dead and buried like Gerard was suggesting. And they just said, like, yeah, like, no thanks. So after a year of raising money, finally the site, the warehouse was dug up and in front of TV cameras and news reporters there was nothing. Nothing was found. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh really, but Gerard then came forward and said that he was unable to visualize due to the clamoring of news reporters, the media attention and the press. He said, and this is a quote, it was strange and unfamiliar. I am upset at my lack of success. I wanted to be more of assistance. It is not an easy thing. It has made me very, very tired. End quote. Like, again, I shouldn't laugh, but how frustrating for everyone and the people who'd raised all this money and like, ah, oh, and embarrassing for him, right? Like, hmm. Anyway, so bye bye, Gerard. There was another lead that said that the kids had been taken to the Mud Islands, which is off the shore of Melbourne, which is about eight and a half hour drive from Adelaide. But that was also a dead end too. They like weren't there. Two years later, in 1968, after the Beaumonts disappeared, Jim and Nancy received three very bizarre letters. Two of them were allegedly from Jane, saying that the man, that's how the person who took them ref was referred to as, the man took her and her siblings home and they were happy and healthy in his care. The third letter was from the man himself saying that he would be willing to give the children back if Jim and Nancy picked a good secluded spot and they came alone. Now, of course, they, oh my goodness, they jumped at this opportunity. An undercover detective went with them and on the day and place that the exchange was meant to happen, no one showed. They were devastated. Jim and Nancy were heartbroken. They were confused. They didn't know what had gone wrong. And a couple of days later, another letter arrived from the man saying that he saw the detective and he felt betrayed. So Jim and Nancy were now super worried that he was going to do something to the kids. Wow. 
1993, 25 years after these letters, with advances in forensic technology, it turns out that the letters were a hoax the whole time. Some teenager, so back then when the letters were sent, it was a teenager, thought it would be funny to do this. Like, what a dickhead. <clears throat> so now we're just going to go over some suspects. There, there are a few. I do apologize. I know we're getting quite long now, but just stick with me here, okay? Derek Percy. Now, if you remember that name, that's because Derek was also under suspicion for the Wanda Beach murders that we looked into last week. To quickly recap, Derek was sent to prison in 1969 for the murder of a nine-year-old, and this is when he was thought to have been involved with the Wanda case. Now, with the Bowman case literally happening less than a year later, Derek was thought to be involved with that. However, in 1966, Derek was only 17, so he matched the description for the Wanda case, but was too young for the Beaumont case. James O'Neill was arrested in 1975 for the murder of a nine-year-old boy in Tasmania, and that's like a whole-ass story itself. He abducted and murdered lots of kids, but he was only ever tried for this one. He was part of the search party for the missing kids, yada, yada, yada. And when he was in prison, he told a station officer that him and some of his friends were responsible for the Beaumont's kids' disappearance. Apparently, between 1965 and 1968, James O'Neill worked in the opal industry and travelled around Melbourne, South and Western Australia. So the police were like, okay, let's, let's look into this guy. But James kept changing his story over and over. He said he was in Adelaide, and then he said he didn't, and then he said he did. Like, the police just grew tired of it. He just wanted attention. So after multiple interviews, South Australian police discounted him as a suspect. Alan Anthony Munro wasn't a suspect until 2015. So a local Glenelg resident, Alan McIntyre, they're both called Alan, I'm sorry, it's confusing, Alan McIntyre's children told him, Alan McIntyre, that they saw a man called Alan Munro, that he had come home with children's bodies in the boot of his car. Between 1962 and 1983, Alan Anthony Munro was found guilty and served 10 years in jail for indecent assault to over 10 children in different places across southern Australia, including Glenelg. So police were like, all right, okay, yet this guy kind of sounds like he's fitting the bill. But at 2015, when the allegation came to light, Alan Munro had served a sentence, completed parole and whatnot, and he was now living in Cambodia. And guess what he was doing in Cambodia? He was working with charities for orphaned Cambodians. Like, did they not do a background check on this guy? Like, hmm. Anyway, the police got in touch with Alan Munro and the only link they could find to Alan Munro was that he was in Adelaide at the time that the Beaumont kids were missing. Like, there was, there was nothing else to directly link him to the Beaumonts. Harry Phipps was a business owner who lived in a house a few meters away from the beach. He was suspected of the crime in 2013 when his son came forward 
and he said that he saw Jane, Anna and Grant in his dad's yard that day, uh, January 26th, 1966. Harry also matched the description of the mystery man and also, a lot of also's, a few workers of Harry's business, right, they came forward and said they have received a large sum of money with instructions to dig a big hole in Harry Phipps' factory. So in 2013, the police excavated the factory and the yards around it, and unfortunately, investigators only found animal remains and animal bones. Not much else links Harry to the kids, again, like Alan Monroe, and he was never officially charged. Bevan Spencer von Anum was arrested in 1984 for the murder of a 15-year-old. He became a suspect when Bevan started bragging to other inmates about abducting and experimenting on three kids he had taken from a beach in Adelaide. Uh, he ended up killing them and dumping their bodies. Despite this unofficial confession, there was never enough physical evidence to accuse him, but to this day, he remains a potential suspect. Arthur Stanley Brown wasn't a suspect until 1998, and I'm talking about him last is because I think this is the guy. I think this guy did it. In 1998, Arthur was charged with the brutal murder of two young sisters, which happened back in 1970, four years after the Beaumonts went missing. This was Judith and Susan McKay. They were seven and five years old. The two girls were abducted from their bus stop before school and their naked bodies were found two days later in a dry bed creek. They had both been raped, choked with sand and strangled to death. Their school uniforms, which is what they were wearing, had been folded up military style and was found sitting right next to them. Now Arthur was accused of this because a family member came forward to accuse him of sexual misconduct against young children in his own family and then with investigation it led to him being charged with this crime now this trial led to widespread media coverage and another allegation was brought in against arthur this was for the abduction of joanne ratcliffe and christy gordon who were 11 and 4 years old and they were abducted from the adelaide oval which is a very famous cricket ground this crime happened in 1973 so with the trial and this other allegation, South Australian police could not ignore the fact that he had done something, he had abducted young children. Even though he was in his mid to late 80s at this point, suffering from both dementia and Alzheimer's, Arthur did have striking resemblance to the sketch for the Beaumont case, even though he was, that artist was drunk. Arthur showed a resemblance. What was interesting was when a sketch was done for the Adelaide Oval disappearances, the sketch for that crime looked very similar to the Beaumont crime sketch, right? I, I know this is all over the shop, but it's, it's so interesting. Arthur, in his youth, had fair hair. He had a thin, almost gaunt facial structure, and the police were quite adamant for this guy. If he was found guilty for the McKays, the police would pin him for the Beaumonts and they would, they would, you know, investigate him for that. Now, during the trial for the McKay sisters, the jurors could not agree on a verdict 
only because pedophilia was not something you could be charged with at the time. He was convicted of rape and murder, but that was usually left for if you did that to someone who was of age, not a minor. He had a retrial and Arthur's lawyers deemed him unfit for trial and due to his mental illness and his you know like what he was suffering with the prosecution actually had no legal standing to pursue and they had to drop all and every charge against him any further charges for the Adelaide Oval abductions or the Beaumont children's abductions would be thrown out instantly which I think is just horrific it's horrendous like no none of the victims Judith, Susan McKay, Joanne Ratcliffe, Christy Gordon or the Beaumonts got any justice and I, I strongly believe that Arthur Stanley Brown had something to do with it. So unfortunately the case is still unsolved. Nancy and Jim ended up divorcing in early 1970s like a couple of years after the kids disappeared. Their lives were completely shattered and they separated like it's so sad that once a happy couple they were living a dream life together they now split whenever a new lead or a new suspect came into play they were in contact they would face the police together but they spent the rest of their lives as privately as they could nancy died monday september 16th 2019 aged 92 never seeing or knowing what happened to her three children Jim is 90, he's still alive, but he keeps to himself. He still hopes for his children to be found and he believes they are still alive, even to this day, and they will one day come home. So, lovely listeners, that is everything on the Beaumont kids' abduction. To this day, the case is cold and remains unsolved, but attitudes changed drastically across Australia. Stranger danger became a common term in households, children were not left as unsupervised as they were before and this is a result from the three cases we've now looked at in this mini-series. Graham was walking to school by himself when he was kidnapped. Marion Schmidt and Christine Sherrick were 15 year olds looking after four younger siblings by themselves when they were brutally murdered and now the three Beaumont kids Jane, Anna and Grant all under the age of 10 were abducted. So needless to say, parental ideas changed. The idea of living in a safe neighbourhood vanished. Like, how heartbreaking. Just these three stories ended Australia's innocence. And I mean, you could see why. These were unthinkable crimes committed against children. Or like the oldest being the 15-year-olds at Wanda Beach and the youngest being four, Grant, who was abducted. Three different types of crime, a kidnapping, a straight up brutal murder and and an abduction. And we don't know whether the Beaumonts were murdered instantly, murdered later on in life, or whether they're still alive out there. We just don't know. And it's scary. And it's scary for a parent. Like, to, oh, I don't want to get too much into it. Like, I'm a parent and you do have to think about these things when you're out. Even if you're with your child, you don't know what's going to happen. You have to try and hope for the best that there isn't some asshole out there who's just going to, like, snatch your kid up. Like, oh, okay, I don't want to get too much into it. All right, Lisa, calm down, calm down. So, lovely listeners, that does conclude the three-part mini-series of the 1960s Australian Crime Wave. 
I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. It was really interesting having these crimes talked about back to back while they're fresh on your noggin and you can kind of get the big picture. I know it's a bit long and all over the shop, but unfortunately that's crime for you. Nothing is ever straightforward and especially with unsolved crimes, we have to look at everything. We need all the details. So I really did weirdly enjoy doing this. I will do another mini series at other other times when the when crimes come up that I can talk about but I will leave you with that I'm very excited for next week's case um, I think it's a very interesting very fascinating case so I can't wait for you guys to hear it but as always let me know get in touch with me with your thoughts and your theories uh, about this unsolved case who do you think did it do you agree with me was it this Arthur Stanley Brown character or was it someone else that I mentioned let me know your thoughts and your your theories but until next time, be safe, be good, be better, all that cheesy crap. And I will see you all next week for another episode of Coffee and Crime.